and welcome to the VR Download. I'm Ian Hamilton. Welcome to our podcast this week. Kyle is off. We've got Jamie here to look at comments. And we've got some very special guests. We're doing another special about Facebook, privacy, and the threat of monopoly, uh, of a monopoly in VR. And we've got a panel of some expert guests here to discuss that with everyone out here. Uh, let's start with Darshan over here on my left. Can you introduce yourself and tell everyone what you do? Hi, uh, my name is Darshan. I'm the founder and CEO of Big Screen. Uh, we're a virtual reality application that launched uh, about four years ago on the, the Rift and the Vive, now available on, on most of the major VR headsets. Uh, we're a social VR application. And Diane? Hi, I'm Diane Hosfeld. I'm Mozilla's mixed reality privacy and security lead. And Kent. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, my name is Kent Bai. I do the Voices of VR podcast. And so I've been capturing this oral history of VR as it's unfolding over the last six years and recorded around 1,500 interviews, uh, published about two-thirds of it so far. But privacy and security has been a big focus of different interviews. I've done probably around 40 to 50 interviews and a number of talks and panel discussions on it over the last four years. So, I listened to your last couple episodes, one with Anton Hand, Hot Dog Horseshoes and Hand Grenades. And uh, the other one with Chris, uh, Enter VR Podcast, right? Um, both of those were yep. very interesting. And also I talked to Darshan as well. So I think the the issue is that, I mean, there's lots of different perspectives of, of privacy, and I, I'm sure we'll be diving into it. But um, yeah, to me, is uh, what's it mean to be in a situation where there's not a lot of viable competition? To me, it's just a little concerning that we're kind of moving into an mm -hmm. era where there's not much recourse for the types of stuff that's happening. Uh, and, you know, as we'll be diving into, I'm sure, is like what data are re being recorded, what's happening to that. Um, and, you know, as we move into this future where in four or five years, Facebook's going to be able to do brain uh, control interfaces and be able to read our thoughts. What's it mean uh -huh. to have a company that can read our thoughts? And that's sort of the technological roadmap. So the types of discussions that we're having right now are kind of moving into eye tracking, galvanic skin response, and like reading our mind and, and what happens to that data and how's that controlled? Me and David, our games editor, got the chance to go in for about 45 minutes to Facebook Horizon, uh, their new, I'm still kind of unsure how to bill it because I used to say their new social VR destination and now i feel like it's actually kind of just a smaller piece of the puzzle they want to build uh looked at some of the games and experiences that are available in there looked at the creation tools that really power the experience in facebook's words um and then we got to talk with uh two of the creators essentially for about half an hour after that so it's been a big week it's not entirely what i expected and i've been i've been going back to watch a lot of the messaging around it around oculus connect last year and i think maybe maybe some expectations of the app had been getting out of place including my own you, you basically create your own worlds using in-app tools you facebook says that everything that we saw was made uh, with those creation tools and we me and david saw a like water balloon fight kind of reminded me of paintball in rec room um and then the other thing we saw was like a puzzle game where two people like had to, it was like a saturday night game show type vibe uh two people had to communicate between different rooms to solve a puzzle uh and then we got taken into the creation mode we were told to make hats um <laughs> which was uh reminded me a little of the google block software from a couple of years ago that i thought was really really impressive but never actually really took off 
And then we, we got a little into the kind of social aspect, which is actually mm-hmm. shares a lot of the same DNA from the reboot of Oculus Venues that's, uh, that's coming up as well. I think I want to start off here is go through each of our panelists here and ask them to sort of summarize what Facebook's most recent moves mean to them and what they think should be on the minds of our audience out there. We have a lot of Quest owners in our audience. Uh, We have a fair number of people who avoid Facebook at all costs, and that's a wide spectrum. And so I kind of want to get start this conversation uh, in the area of what do you think is top of your mind? And what do you think should be on the tops of the minds of our audience out there? So Darshan, let's, let's start with you and kind of explain your Twitter thread and what's going on for you these days. Cool. So I think the way I would look at it is I've been, I'm, I'm giving the perspective of a, of a VR developer um, and a hardcore VR user. But I've been full-time working on making VR software for over six years, uh, starting with the early Oculus developer kit. Um, from that perspective, uh, basically, I'm coming at it from the lens of VR won't uh, go anywhere in the future without people like Facebook investing and creating amazing hardware like the Oculus Quest. I mean, it takes a lot of investment to get it to this kind of a point. Um, but also, that has on the other side of that, it also needs developers, uh, VR content creators to create experiences that are that make this device worth purchasing because to give things that are interesting to do. Um, my perspective comes from years and years of pouring my energy into VR, uh, but potentially running up against issues with Facebook and their policies and the way they treat developers. Um, so to, to start off with that Twitter thread, uh, basically, we've been building out a business over the past few years uh, uh, with a piece of software that does a bunch of different things. People use us for movies, games, using their computer, working, working with their coworkers, et cetera. On, specifically with the movies, uh, people buy movie tickets or, or really movie rentals through our software. And the problem is Facebook also does work in that area and works with other partners, other uh, media partners in that area as well. So they work with Netflix and Hulu and Fandango and, and other apps. And Facebook even produces their own VR software that also provides movie rentals. Now, when Facebook makes a deal with other companies, they're basically allowing them to not pay a 30% tax on in-app purchasing, to, to allow these platforms that distribute movies to distribute it without paying Facebook the 30%. Uh, when Facebook does it themselves, of course, Facebook doesn't have to pay Facebook 30% for in-app purchasing. Uh, however, they make us pay 30% and they force it. And we've been negoti- trying to talk to them about this for years and years and years. And we're getting nowhere uh, because Facebook just doesn't want to just, just doesn't want to budge. They don't want developers to think that 30% is negotiable. So they're just not budging. And this is affecting not just uh, big screen, but a lot of different VR developers across various different types of use cases in VR, where Facebook makes special deals with certain companies if it benefits them. but for VR developers who are pouring their souls into this, for VR developers creating things which are potentially competitive directly with Facebook's own goals, which is to you know create social VR and uh, experiences that uh, are used for work and entertainment and media and play. Uh, they want to own all of that. And for companies and developers that are kind of potentially competing directly against that, there's 
there's no willingness to negotiate. And, and in fact, the, the kind of tables are turned where they're saying, well, we've poured in billions of dollars into VR to create this ecosystem. So, you know, we need developers to pay us money too. Like we need a way to make money off of this too. Um, which is deeply ironic considering Facebook's mm. currently been in massive uh, arguments with Apple. Uh, Facebook is a completely free app on the iOS app store. doesn't give Apple much money. Apple's the one investing billions into creating the iPhone. And Facebook is also wrestling against Apple for that 30%. But for VR developers, they're willing to completely just dominate and say there's there's no budging. Um, so our perspective is of a VR developer that's trying to build a new business in VR. And Facebook was not willing to even make it financially feasible. Basically, the content owners get most of the revenue. Facebook takes the remaining part. And we're left with negative margins. We can't build a business here. And Facebook's mm. doing this with all sorts of different industries. Like nobody can create any sort of store in VR, period. Like, like you can't really create uh, something that enables users to buy physical goods, like any sort of shopping experience. Uh, no commerce, no media, because anyone that wants to do media or, or shopping, like imagine if you want to buy a couch. Well, there's not that much margins in couches to begin with, and Facebook wants 30% of that. Um, yeah. it's just financially impossible. Um, okay. so Facebook's got this kind of iron grip on VR right now. Uh, and that's kind of the basis of this, this whole thread, uh, this iron okay. grip, because they have such an excellent headset, uh, but policies that maybe don't line up with, with the community. And, and it seems more like the things that Facebook is interested in, they're, they're willing to do whatever it takes to make that happen. But when developers approach Facebook, it's kind of just a wall. So let's go to Diane next. What, uh, what do you think are the biggest things that should be on people's minds out there? And what are the issues facing the VR market right now in your perspective? I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the requirement that users use Facebook accounts starting in, what is it, 2022? Uh, 2023, but as soon as you buy a new Oculus device. Yeah, in the near future. Um, so it I think it's actually a smart move by Facebook because maintaining two different account systems is a hassle. Now, you can argue that Facebook could actually um, link those accounts manually by using the VR data that they have and by doing tracking and everything. But that's a lot of work. You know, when possible, we want, we as developers are lazy and we want to make it easy on ourselves. So having one authentication system makes sense. Um, so from that perspective, I actually think that it makes total sense for Facebook to make it easier on themselves to, we've also seen that Facebook um, has said that for users who link a Facebook account to their quest, that they'll use then VR related information to target for advertisements. So by using an Oculus account, that was one way to opt out of this advertising system. But we also know that um, Facebook sells Oculus devices at a loss because it thinks that it'll make it up in advertising dollars or in app store dollars later on, but more likely in advertising dollars. So you have to think, you know, when you're buying these very affordable devices, um, where is the money being made up later on? And what are the reasons that you're getting this affordable device? And what does Facebook think that they're going to get out of it and get out of you as the user? It's, it's helpful for me to hear that from 
you and from other people because I think one of the gaps out there is uh, people sort of concerned about these things, but not being able to point to necessarily specific examples of what's actually happening out there. Anton Hand out there has been one of the most vocal critics of Facebook the entire time. For the last four years or five years since Facebook acquired Oculus, has been kind of like everyone jumping on board and, and saying to Facebook, okay, we're going to give you this time to prove the market. We're going to like give you the benefit of the doubt, more or less, uh, to prove that VR is a real thing and it's a thing with a, a real consumer marketplace that people will want to pay for. Now it's almost, at this moment in time, scary because there is no other competitor given this strange situation where vr is big enough for facebook to be interested but too small for some of the giants to be interested since they want ar uh, and the massive millions and millions of out-of-home users to go and use those headsets walking around the real world so it's this it's this in-between moment where there's a lot of turmoil changes and concerns about what could happen in the future. And uh, Kent, you you finish every podcast asking what is what do you think is the ultimate potential of VR and AR? I I want you to speak to the same question I put to the other guests, but I want you to say you know right now that, that all those pod all those guests you've had a thousand of them now come onto your podcast and talk about the ultimate potential. But right now, here in what we're almost September 2020, what should people be thinking about right now about VR and what are the, the concerns on your mind? So first, to look at just the Facebook account, the, I think an important thing to remember is that for signing on to Facebook, you're actually signing on to Facebook's privacy policy, which is different than what Oculus has been. And Facebook's privacy policy means that they can track everything that you do on the, the when you're not even logged into uh, Facebook, uh, all your um, offline purchases that uh, people are selling to Facebook. So they're basically gathering in all this information. Um, so requiring a Facebook account means that you're kind of submitting to this larger surveillance capitalism type of business model. So, and I share the concern with Diane in terms of the, you know, with Apple, if you look at something like Apple, you have the App Store model, 30%. If that's all it was, I think most consumers would be okay with that. But they're kind of double dipping on that because they're they're doing the App Store model, but they're also surveilling us. This, you know, we're kind of opening up the door to have all of our data be tracked. Everything we say or do in VR is going to be fed into this giant machine that's watching everything. And if we think about, um, first of all, I think a couple of points. One is that, um, Facebook's definition of privacy is not what most people think of privacy. In fact, it's not even what the U.S. government interprets uh, the Fourth Amendment to be. Um, anytime you give any data to a third party, there's a third party doctrine that says there's no reasonable expectation for that data to remain private. That means that if Facebook starts to record all of our emotional reactions, what we're looking at, correlating that to what we're seeing in VR, that means the U.S. government can go to Facebook and say, we want to get the emotional profile for what Kent Pai has been looking at for the last five years. And there's nothing that Facebook can do to, other than just to hand that data over. So when it comes to privacy, Facebook often will define privacy as 
they'll record all this stuff and we'll show you what we're recording. But that's actually not like how the third party doctrine works. As soon as they record it, it's considered public data, according to the U.S. government. So this there's a very specific legal definition between what's public and what's private. And as of right now, anything that is given to a third party, like all of cyberspace is a public. Once we allow Facebook to start to gather all this biometric data on us, we're opening up the door for this big brother surveillance state where that information could actually be undermining uh, our interests. So as an example, you may have a medical condition and that may be detected with what is happening in VR. That could be sold to a company that's trying to exploit that in some ways or for insurance companies who want to deny you insurance coverage. So there's there's all sorts of ways in which the data that are being collected could be undermining our own sense of agency in the world. Um, and my problem is that it's sort of being sold as a privacy thing. <laughs> and it's like that they're architecting it for privacy. And it's almost like doublespeak because it's the exact opposite of what is actually happening. To Ken's point just then, uh, just in the comments, D1360 said uh, Facebook could see that you're good at PokerStar VR, for example. And then what does that mean for advertising? Does that mean that they then take that information and throw a load of gambling sites at you? What if you're really good at Onward? Do they take that information and then throw U.S. military advertising at you? Yeah, no, I thought that was great insight in the comment section, Justin. Very interesting, very broad section of things to think about here that everyone has brought up. One thing I want to uh, mention is I saw Gerald is in our comments uh, bringing up uh, Gerald McAllister. He has been digging into the latest version of the Oculus OS for Quest and found a lot of very intriguing in insight related but it's very likely in the next couple months you'll be able to draw a line on your couch to define a seating area there that you could just go and sit down in on your couch there's also a pass-through keyboard which very much looks to be exactly what it sounds like where you can put your fingers down on your keyboard in the real world and see some kind of representation in VR that matches up to that keyboard so you can type on VR while you're in VR. I want to rewind the tape a bit and talk about the Oculus privacy policy and these conversations I've had with their PR department where I have sort of tried to stick them to history and stick them with very clear verbiage about what they say they're going to do with this data. So uh, some of that language has suggested that the headset itself uh, is the only thing that processes room data. So in theory, according to Oculus, there's more or less the suggestion that the headset looks for points of interest that it can sort of guide the headset relative to. And that information never leaves the headset according to Facebook's or Oculus's old policy. Now, as we've discussed here, Oculus as an entity is going away, and now it's just left with Facebook. And uh, this goes back to kind of why I wanted to have this conversation, and I'm so appreciative of these guests for joining us, because we had this conversation last week. We had Kyle uh, hosting in my chair, and uh, he was sort of playing devil's advocate and brought up this idea of like, what is the difference between an Oculus and a Facebook account? What does it really matter? I wanted to zero in on that. What is the difference between a Facebook and an Oculus account? And 
we're due for an update to that privacy policy very soon, right, Kent? So the Oculus privacy policy was going to remain for existing Oculus users. Um, and there's going to be some updates to that privacy policy, but there's also going to be a supplemental Oculus specific private data private policy that once you once you sign up to Facebook, you're going to have to sign up to the terms of service and the privacy policy of Facebook, which if you read the two, there's actually a, a, wide, a quite more latitude for what kind of data they can collect on you. There's a real name policy. And so they're basically going to be gathering all that information on you. And then on top of that, there's going to be an Oculus specific data policy that they're releasing in October, but they're not going to show it to us until after Oculus Connect 7. So, or I'm sorry, Facebook Connect One. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, yeah. So it's not so there. Uh, you know, for me, there's a bit of the larger concerning thing as well is just Facebook as an entity. Um, like Mark Zuckerberg holds 58 percent of all shareholder votes, and and so basically, it's one person controlling the future of the company. And if the shareholders try to go against that, then it doesn't matter. He's just going to do what he's going to do. And I feel like that. There's a deeper subtext here, and I think you know, talking to Darshan, and you know that there's these conflict of interest that Facebook will have sometimes between cultivating a developer ecosystem and kind of carving out the area that they want to completely own and control. And so I think there's a meta question here of how we even engage Facebook on these specific issues, what kind of transparency we have, and how do we even keep up to date as to what's happening when they're in complete control of all the information and uh, we haven't even actually seen it. Yeah, so we don't know what the new privacy policy is. Um, we can only speculate um, at this point. But there is a difference if you look at the Facebook privacy policy and the Oculus privacy policy. Do a close reading, and you can see that there's a lot more ways in which that they're able to uh, gather outside information on you and aggregate it. Yeah, I think the the underlying issue there is there's there's people who looked at everything that happened, and, and Anton, I, I suppose, being one of them, Chet, uh, formerly a Valve being another, where they looked at the acquisition of Oculus by Facebook in 2014 and said, any difference between these companies is purely fictional. It's, it's, it's a legal uh, farce, almost. It would be the, the kind of argument from some of these people. And anyone that, that saw these entities as separate uh, between then and now, uh, was kind of uh, drinking Kool-Aid or something. You know, they're, they're, you know there's, there's people who weren't really embracing the reality of the situation. Do you think that's, uh, I guess for all of you, do you think that's a fair way of looking at it? Or was there a difference between Facebook and Oculus that is different now? Well, I don't have a Facebook account. I do have an Oculus account. I'm not particularly interested in having a Facebook account because then my racist uncle is going to want to be Facebook friends with me again. And I don't particularly want that. Um, so for me, being forced to have a Facebook account again brings up a whole lot of, um, of social baggage with it. And um, it, because we have Facebook Horizon, we also have to think about, um, you know, moderation. Maybe you don't necessarily want to share things that you would share on mm -hmm. Facebook with people that you want to hang out with. And VR, maybe it brings about a very different social norm, I think. And it also brings out questions of moderation and blocking. And so it's not just about the data privacy. 
Yeah. Although that is a big part of it. We, me and David had about, like I said, like a, a half an hour slash 20 minute interview of Facebook this week to, to try and work out the bones of that with Horizon. And I, and I could be wrong. That, I mean, there's a heck of a lot to pick through here. But I was getting the sense that what they were trying to tell me was that the friend system, as it works today, and as the invite system is rolling out to people across the Oculus network, it's still working towards your Oculus friend list rather than your Facebook friend list. And then there was a really interesting video they put out today. So they put out two videos today themselves, one being their kind of hype trailer for Horizons, the second being literally called uh, Facebook Horizons Safety Tutorial or something like that. If you So if you report a person, what's going to happen in the words of the trailer, because those were the most dependable words I got, um, is that they are recording... <laughs> Sounds so scary. They're recording what you do in Horizons, but they will send the, the last few minutes of that, presuming that the incident that you're reporting is included in that. Uh, you will consent to send that to Facebook, and then Facebook says they will delete that recording once they have monitored it. Um, and, and I could be speaking out of turn here, so I'm, please go watch the video everyone's watching because I'm, I'm trying to... Uh, infer what they're trying to talk about here. If that person has multiple uh, reports, they might monitor that person in some way, which is not something that me and David were able to get absolute specifics out of them from in our interview. The other, the other point to that as well is uh, they have something they call a safe zone, which they have uh, they have a screenshot of actually in their official assets. Um, which is when you look at uh, the front of your wrist, like in a lot of VR UI systems, there are three buttons. One's like the menu, one's like a general settings, I think. And then one is the safe zone button, which you press it and you are immediately immersed in a blue bubble um, and everyone else around you is muted and frozen. And that's where you're allowed to kind of report or uh, comment or whatnot. Um, that's really it's an interesting system, actually. Sorry. That's a really good system actually for moderation. Yeah, I, I liked it. Like they had some of the stuff. Yeah, no, it's on this it's on the screen now. This is what you see. Um I liked it. I liked uh they have the kind of well they, they say they have the kind of the anti the anti trolling thing of if someone wants to get in your face, they've got the invisible wall, which is something they've done in VR for a long time, although I did it to David immediately, and they said, and David said, "Wait, that's not working. His his fingers are in my eyes right now." Um, <laughs> but they said, "Oh, that must be a bug." <laughs> um, but it, it it is interesting. Um, I and yeah, I am I implore everyone to go out and and look. We have it on our trailers channel, and also Facebook has it on theirs. It's about a one minute thirty uh, video, animated video, talking over those uh, those points. Um. Yeah. I have a sorry, just a. I just want to follow up on that real quick, just because um, oftentimes you'll read through the privacy policy of Oculus and they'll say, because we need to keep you safe and from harassment, then we need to be able to record what happens to you in these virtual reality environments. And so that's sort of context dependent in a lot of ways. Like you need to have that ability to keep yourself safe. 
I think the issue is that um, if you look at a privacy philosophy from Helen Nissebaum, she has a, an approach called contextual integrity, which means that there's a very specific context in which information is recorded. So like, let's say when you go to a doctor, then that's the medical context and you have information coming in. I think one of the big issues that I have with this approach of this privacy policy is that that context is never really defined and it's never actually there's no limits to that. So they'll say, we'll be able to record what happens and what you say or do, but you don't know if in any given context that they're able to do that. And for people that live in, Euro in the European Union, there's GDPR where there's things that if there's something that's connected to your direct identity, then you know you have some audit there. And, and in California, there's presumably more rights for people uh, that sort of get some of those GDPR-like protections, but it's still a bit of an open question as to you know, what happens for everybody else. Because there's there's often things like we need to record all this information in order to make the technology better. That's a legitimate use. But I think the issue is what's the threshold between now all of a sudden you've created the language that's in there that when you have BCI, they're able to read your thoughts or they're able to read what you're looking at and um, you know what happens to that data when they're using AI to extrapolate all this information about me and what I value based upon that biometric data. And what how's that get fed into a giant machine that is trying to understand who I am and what I might buy, buy ads on? So I think that there's a lot of things that you'll find within the privacy policy that will have that type of thing. Like we need to be able to record this but the limits of that in the context of like, do you do you know if you're being recorded right now or those types of things? Mm. Or if it's at a lower frequency now, there's no obligation for them in the future to say, oh, now we're actually recording this at 90 hertz rather than, you know, one hertz. Um, and so once that data are available, uh, then I think that's, you know, it. there's a difference between identified and de-identified data. And the risk is that you, they're gathering all this data at this point, they're saying doesn't identify you. But at some point in the future, AI gets good enough that it's able to determine what your digital fingerprint is based upon that data. And if that leaks out onto the dark web, you know, they've been aggregating all this biometric data. What happens if that, there's a, a security hack? And then all of a sudden you have the emotional profile of everybody in the United States for a decade. What kind of ways could you really manipulate society? And I think the, the line between persuasion and behavioral modification is very um uh, un, uh, it's an unknown ethical threshold what the difference is between persuasion and, and modifying people's behavior. Interesting. Uh, the thing I wanted to get into in response to that is there's another model for sort of social interactions online. And I've heard this spoken by experts at some companies uh -huh. that some fake companies that it's actually in the benefit of a major company to capture as little information as possible in in certain situations that it's actually easier for them to not have to deal with lawsuits to not risk user data to not have all those security issues that they could potentially have by having this warehouse of personal information so there's actually a benefit to having avatars that are only little blockheads and uh you know only maybe showing the movement of players in wobbly ways like like normal vr does with its norm core avatars like having these wobbly avatars instead of really hyper realistic avatars and the the flip side of that is facebook clearly is playing and betting on hyper realism hyper-realistic avatars being critical to this next phase of collapsing distance. They're 
rallying cry is is quote defy distance and they want to have this feeling of a grandma in one part of the world being able to talk to their grandchild in another part of the world and actually feeling like they're actually looking at the real person rather than a stripped down anonymized version of them and one of our articles this week was talking about how uh i, I thought this was that, that that article is out there right from heaney on them being oh, yeah, able yeah, to yeah i've been off I've been off this week so i have not read up on all of our articles uh really closely uh this particular week but i wanted to come on for this show because i thought it was so important to continue this conversation and keep on facebook and keep on this on the community since uh last week's podcast had such a big response and this is a really relevant important issue so i, I made sure i came on this week so we could have that discussion but i thought it was really kind of alarming to think of how many facial expressions facebook could tease out just by listening to your voice was more or less the the gist of that research i believe mm. um and it it, it plays into a lot of the fears that are existent out there regarding Facebook and microphones being on and listening to people for advertising. Now, to be clear here, Andrew Bosworth, uh, the head of former head of ads and the current head of VR at Facebook has said that that is not something Facebook does. He's replied to me directly on Twitter, more or less saying that. And uh, I've seen other people sort of in those comment threads with him trying to look at all of the holes in their explanations to make sure that this really doesn't ever happen. Um, and it's, it's never, you know, there's a lot of paranoia out there, latent paranoia that just isn't existing out there. That's never going to go away. I don't think I always get frustrated when I see people say younger generations aren't as concerned about this as newer generations. I think it's a quite different thing to say, um, that younger generations grew up having to be aware of these things from age 10 or age 8 versus a, a person who learned to be aware of this thing at 15 or 18 or 20. And even uh, older folks, maybe in their 50s or 60s, who um, had to learn how to use Facebook at that age and weren't quite aware of all the way those things could could come back to affect them. Um, so I, I, th I want to kind, of kind of toss it out that younger folks don't care about this. I think it's very much top of mind for them. Um, and they change their technology use as a result. And that's why that's part of the reason I think why Facebook is kind of this desolate dead space for so many people, because they've learned not to put the things on Facebook that are going to be unflattering in a year or two. Um, the one question I think I wanted to ask, uh, really important here is the lack of competition is one of the things that, that people are so concerned about. And I want to just throw it out there as a, um, hypothetical right now, but say Apple did come out with its own headset in the next 12 months, its own VR headset that was powered by a lot of great AR features. It, it can understand the environment around you and you can operate your keyboard like we know Facebook is going to do very soon. 
and you can work in VR to a certain degree as well as play some games and maybe get fit while while doing things in VR. Let's say that headset is here from Apple in the next 12 months. What changes about the dynamic that everyone is talking about here when that happens? Do you want to go first? Um, I think from a developer perspective, it's nice to have a lot of different options in terms of uh, creativity, even different headsets from different companies tend to take different approaches to solving problems, whether it's ergonomics or technical capabilities. Um, so I think it's always great to, to see that uh, from a software side, it gives more distribution opportunities, more, more people will buy more headsets when there's more choice to, to choose from. Uh, competition is really great because it allows people to kind of always keep pushing bounds. Um, and I think that'll keep Facebook on their feet to just really keep going, going with VR. Um, I think the main thing that my concerns are usually based around are anti-competitive measures that are taken uh, to, to prevent people from ever getting to a position where they can compete or, or to put up hurdles that prevent them from getting to success. Uh, especially when it kind of competes directly or, or kind of is in an area that Facebook thinks is important for them to own and have vocally said for five years is what they want to own, uh, kind of going all the way back to when Facebook uh, kind of wrote and said, like, they should buy Unity and just control the whole ecosystem so that Apple or, or others won't have as much power and Facebook will be able to control um, a VR and 3D graphics and the next computing platform. I think if, if Apple or, or others were to get into into VR and really push that, that prevents some of those, or at least makes it harder for those really anti-competitive kind of walled gardens to be built up because there are now alternatives that people can, can go to. Whether people are, are developers or consumers of content that developers create, just there's going to be more places to go to, which um, will make it harder to build kind of the, the dystopian future, this like one metaverse, it's just in one headset. Everybody spends all day long in it. And it's just one app. Uh, and Facebook sees all of those pixels. Facebook gets to know everything about you. And, you know, you wake up in the morning. And if you're if you're poor, you first have to watch ads for 20 minutes before you can see the world, right? Like, I'm, I'm exaggerating there a little bit, but but am I? Um, those futures are, are very much possible. Um, and competition in the near term will help us prevent from even getting close to those those terrible dystopian futures. And Diane, I think you need to get going in a minute. I guess this would be a, yeah. a good opportunity for a, sort of a closing statement. What do you think uh, regarding think, my question? Anything else Apple, you want to share? Yeah, Apple has a few really great strengths in this arena. One, um, stuff they make just works. Um, not that Facebook doesn't make stuff that works, but um, stuff that they make works and it integrates into their existing ecosystem of products. That's a huge strength of theirs. Um, like uh, the amount of hoops I had to jump through to hook up my AirPods with my Quest was, you know, it was not a small number of hoops. Um, so I think that that's a big, a big strength that Apple could have in this arena. Um, totally agree with everything that was just said. Um, and additionally, Apple values privacy. So I think that they're, you know, if they were to enter this arena, their product would be priced higher. But um, I think that people would value both the fact that it would work in their existing ecosystem of product and that when they buy into it, they know that they're buying something 
that isn't just going to, you know, be, that isn't just going to sell all their data, that isn't going to just monitor their gaze for their sexual orientation, their affective disorders, whether they're autistic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that, that isn't going to be tracking their gait to create a unique identifier, all these things that we know you can do with um, VR data. Um, and so I think that Apple has a lot of strengths or really any other company has exactly what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone. You know, they invest in privacy, they invest in security, they invest in novel encryption techniques to do, you know, um, privacy preserving data analysis. Um, and so I think that it's good to have a privacy preserving alternative. And whether that's Apple or whether that's someone else, I think that that can only be good for the market and for VR and for consumers. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, good luck with uh, everything. And uh, Kent, let's let's hear Thank from you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Thank Diane. Good to Thanks, see you. Diane. Good to see you. Great to see you all. Um, so, yeah, I think it, the... Apple, first of all, I think all the things that Dan was saying about uh, privacy, that's all true. But I think in talking to Arshan, I think there's also an element where you kind of have the spectrum between like freedom and safety and security. And that like the more safe and secure you are to be private means that you have little to no freedom at all on the platform. It's, you know, of all the different platforms that are out there, Apple is the most locked down of all of them. And also almost adversarial to a lot of the open standards that have been coming out. So like rather than using OpenGL, they'll create something called Metal. It's their own system. Whether than using GLTF, they'll use a UZD, uh, whatever the Pixar um, format is. Um, rather than using something like OpenXR and to sign on that, they'll just not sign on to it or participate in that community process. Or whether it's about uh, implementing WebXR into their browser, they'll just ignore it because they would rather people develop uh, native apps. Um, we're kind of in this situation where like either you develop native apps or like WebXR is basically Google Chrome versus Apple and Apple is not implementing the specs. And so, you know, what happens to the open web when you have two major companies and one just refuses because they say it's because of safety and security and privacy, but is it, is it just because they want to own and control everything just like Apple does? Um, and so, and then you have Facebook who I think is in a lot of ways trying to adopt that same Apple model so you would potentially have two major companies that were uh, basically saying that they're architecting for privacy and architecting for safety and security, but really it's about maintaining total platform domination and control. Um, and the alternative is something like the open model, something let's say like Android or what happens with Steam VR. And I think what we're seeing is that there's something about, well, I'm talking to Neil Trevitt, he says every successful open standard has a proprietary competitor. I think we're in this precarious position where all of the value needs to be proved out by these closed proprietary systems like the Oculus or, or the Quest before the open source versions come along and do something that's different. Maybe that's a big reason why Google's uh, efforts have, have largely fallen flat because mm. they take a you know mass scale decentralized approach uh, and also, like, what's going to be the future of the Steam ecosystem if everything moves from PC to VR to standalone? Standalone VR is much more, you know, maybe the the, the final form factor, but it's also 
takes a lot of energy and artificial intelligence and computer vision and billions of dollars of research that Facebook is um, uh, investing. And so maybe Apple or potentially Microsoft or other, you know, open uh, uh, approaches that Microsoft may be facilitating. Um, But what I've seen happening in a little bit is that there's a bit of a floundering of that open approach where you, you, if you succeed, you're able to do your own marketing and maybe you're, you'll have a viral hit, but you have to also sift through a lot of shovelware that's in the open approach that uh, creates a lot of noise that makes it difficult for people to succeed. And I think what we're seeing maybe is that folks that go through that more closed model are able to financially succeed, but then it creates almost like a self fulfilling prophecy where the only future that we have is completely closed. And to me, like what Tim Sweeney is trying to do with this lawsuit with app uh, with Epic versus uh, Apple and Google, he's trying to invoke the Sherman Act of 1890, saying, "Hey, look, there's some real monopolistic, anti-competitive behaviors that are happening." And you could, and Apple could say, "Well, we invested billions of dollars to create this platform, just the same as Facebook can make that same argument. Like we've invested billions of dollars, we should be able to have a 30% tax for here forever." Uh, but that 30% tax, if that would have been implemented back by Tim Berners-Lee back in the day uh, uh-huh. or anybody else, like we wouldn't have things like Amazon or Facebook. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that there's uh, there's always a dialectic between the closed and the open. And I think that the pendulum is almost like swinging towards this closed model. But I hope things like OpenXR, WebXR would uh, potentially allow folks to have more open alternatives. And you know, like what Darshan's been facing is like this maybe argument around like we have to do it this specific way, but it's also a way for Facebook to say we want to own completely these specific industries and we're not going to have anybody else that can viably compete. And so uh, if Apple does that, there you know, there's nothing to stop Apple from doing uh-huh. the, that exact same thing. So there's a bit of uh, artificial limiting behavior about what VR as a medium could do based upon this idea of what these major corporations think that is going to be a major uh, boon in terms of their financial future of this to make it really viable. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they have to find a way to make their money back. But is it going to be through, you know, uh, treating independent developers like Darshan, like what he's had to face with big screen and kind of like publicly say, we're creating an open ecosystem, but at the same time, trying to own and control very specific niches of that ecosystem, but not never tell, but never tell anybody. And to kind of like give people the run around, lie to them, gaslight them until they, they kind of get strangled, you know, just kind of uh, get squashed out of business. And that's kind of what I see happening is that it's like, we don't know where Facebook is going. We don't know what those areas that they want to dominate. Um, and that they're, you know, it, they're everything they're doing is making what it is, but it's like how much of of the future of VR do we want to sacrifice from this conflict of interest that Facebook has between cultivating an open ecosystem versus having ways in which they're you know exerting their complete control over something? And is is something like Tim Sweeney's uh, lawsuit and Epic's lawsuit against Apple and Google is that going to break up at a fundamental layer? And if it doesn't, then we're in a world of living in the App Store model forever, where uh, there's going to be uh, uh, four or five companies controlling our entire digital future. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a lot of ground you covered. It's it's really uh, a sprawling issue. Um, are there any comments, Jamie, that we should bring up and talk about? So, give me a second to check because there was something interesting further up. 
I'm looking through. I'm not looking at the screens this week. I'm looking through my app so everyone knows. Uh, Gerald is getting some really interesting stuff. Um, talking about the reason that uh, Apple is getting into services now. Um, people talking about Valve saying uh, they didn't see in Valve embroiled in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Steam is such a huge, huge, huge market. And to Kent's point, it was a really fascinating point that was maybe maybe the closed ecosystem kind of has to succeed first before the open ecosystem comes along and, and to challenge it. Um, I just think that's a really great point and, and it keeps Valve... We're talking about a lack of competition, but it, it keeps Valve in the conversation here, right? Like... It, it's so yeah. hard because they're, they're going through. But, but what do you Sorry, want? go ahead. Quite a delay here between us. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, there is. There is. I, well, I, I, I don't know. I didn't really have much to say. Other than it just keeps valving the conversation because we want them to be there, right? And Index is such an interesting piece of hardware, but it is kind of still very restrictive. And you know, we're talking about a four hundred dollar Quest versus the thousand dollar Index. Um, and, and in a lot of consumers' minds, those two things don't weigh up, right? But at the same time, we, as a group of people here right now, want Valve to be there. We want, uh, maybe to a lesser extent, we want HTC to be there, and, and we want HP to be there because they are providing that competition that we're talking about right now. Hmm. Yeah, it's... So, uh, one of the other comments was about Steam... You was can that see my... the screen, I can't. Yeah, one of the other comments I saw was that my my parents aren't in in a danger of being radicalized by uh, QAnon conspiracies by Steam, and I thought that was a a very interesting way of, of wording what what Steam is and uh, what its appeal is to people. Uh, the thing I want to sorry, go ahead. I could piggyback on that one. Um... I think, uh, Kent, maybe you had mentioned this earlier, things like Steam wouldn't even exist if Windows uh, operated the way our ecosystems today operate. Steam wouldn't exist if they had to pay Microsoft 30% and, and kind of work alongside Microsoft's rules of exactly what content is allowed and, and restrictions like that. Uh, the web wouldn't exist the way it does today uh, if like you mentioned, if Tim Berners-Lee uh, set all these walled garden rules, like only this is allowed, there's no payments allowed, there's no cryptocurrency allowed. Imagine if Tim Berners-Lee said no cryptocurrency is allowed in the, in the 90s. I wouldn't, we wouldn't have any of the things that we have today. Facebook wouldn't exist if the browser required <laughs> Facebook.com to do these things. Um, the, that's the importance of, of these open ecosystems that allow anybody to create stores, to create commerce, to distribute media, to create games. Just allow a lot of that because if you don't, you're significantly uh, limiting the types of content and creativity that are even possible. Hmm. I, I think that's such a wonderful way of putting it. And the, the next phase, the, the, the prospect of an Apple headset has been talked about for a decade uh so no one really wants to believe that it's actually going to happen it's like this fabled competitor that hasn't actually come out uh i think that the thing i've i've put out there in a couple different ways but four hundred dollars for a quest is believed to be they're already taking a loss on hardware and we can expect 
Quest or, you know, a, an Apple version of a standalone VR headset to probably be marketed as a for-profit device. So they're going to price it at a place where they can take their Apple tax, so to speak. That's some of the things people refer to it as. And it's interesting to see the Apple tax terminology used in the software fights. It's it's the Google tax. It's the it's the Apple tax in software form. And there's a Steam tax to be to to, to argue and and make sure that they're being held accountable too. The thing that I think is going to be interesting to see is. Absolutely. At the end of the day, VR headsets need to have safety first, right? You don't want people walking into a wall because the Guardian system, Chaperone system, whatever system is telling you where you are, sees a mirror and gets confused by the mirror as to where you actually are in the room and uh, causes you to hit your head on a on a desk. So that's like number one. And when you have that safety situation as rule number one, it doesn't necessarily lend itself to an open ecosystem per what Kent was saying. Um, you've actually got to have these things at the end of the day that keep a person safe above all else. And how do you have safety and then freedom of choice to put on what softer you want at the end of the day? Can, um, I, can I argue against that real quick? Um, go ahead. If, uh, think about something like Chrome. Uh, Chrome gives you access to all sorts of different content on the web. But Chrome also provides application developers who are creating websites the ability to uh, record your microphone or to access your webcam. And when that occurs, that is, again, a big privacy scenario. But is is Chrome um, kind of uploading all of that imagery into Google servers just to, just to double check? Not necessarily. Or are they monitoring and inspecting what's happening in your room? And classifying things? Are they doing eye tracking to determine your emotions while you're on a Skype call in Chrome? We, we know, as, as far as we know, that that's not happening. Um, and in fact, Chrome goes one step further to make it clear when you're using Chrome that one of the websites is currently using your microphone. One of the websites is currently requesting permissions to use your, your webcam. And those are the kind of privacy protections uh, and, and safety protections for for users that we can reasonably expect, even from an open platform that allows you to visit and do whatever you want. I, d I don't mm. think they're necessarily kind of one or the other. I think both are are certainly possible. Um, and, and I think we can get safety and we can get real privacy. Uh, but a bigger question here is just, can we trust the company that is saying privacy is first and, and we're going to do this? Or are they going to use privacy, give us features that enable privacy, but also use that exact same technology to do other things without telling us? And, and I think it's that latter piece that is concerning. Well, obviously, all the major platforms <laughs> yeah, right now are building world maps uh, of everything out in the, in, the, in the real world in order to make a lot of these location-based services, AR services, work on lower power and more quickly. And that's certainly one of those things that uh, I think Kent and I think Kent got into earlier about future AI systems being able to maybe re-identify de-identify data being a, a huge concern. Um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I just want I wanted to jump in uh, to kind of piggy off that before we um, lose the thread. Is that 
If you look at the what the Snowden documents were alleging what was happening with the National Security Agency, it wasn't that the NSA was listening to all of our conversations. It was looking at the metadata of who we were talking to and for how long. And so if you think about all this information, like you can get a lot of it's like if you were to record eye tracking data, let's say there's eye tracking within the next year or two, you can extrapolate so many different inferences about what people value, what they're paying attention to, what their sexual preferences are. And if you can also capture everything that's happening in that virtual world, then you're able to potentially correlate specifically what people are looking at and what they think about it based upon how much their pupil are, are dilated. And one of the things that Darshan was saying is that, you know, they could say we're going to have eye tracking, but only Facebook can use it because it's too dangerous for others to use it. And so then you have a situation where they could be looking at all, all that eye tracking data and they could not even be recording it. But what they could be doing is running uh, a real time um, inference AI algorithm onto that to say, you know, uh, Ian's looking at this uh with this object for, you know, more than other things, let's uh, extrapolate that uh, through an AI algorithm, say Ian is interested in oranges or basketballs, whatever it is. And they won't necessarily even have to have the raw data and record it. They could be doing real-time processing and all of that. And so it's not necessarily just that they're going to be recording all this data. It's what kind of AI is going to be extrapolating uh, like judgments on us. And if you imagine like sort of a dystopic outcome of what that could be, Let's say you're in a situation where you are interested in something that also happens to have a, a profile with somebody who they declare as a terrorist or something. And then you've you've had this set of behaviors that then all of a sudden you get automatically put into this bucket of people who then get watched or get put into jail or whatever. You, know, you can think about all sorts of different ways in which that could go wrong. But that's already starting to happen um, with folks of having... Um, algorithmic uh, judgments that are made upon people. There's a, a documentary that is premiering at Sundance this year called Coded Bias. And it goes through all these different ways in which like they try to evaluate teacher performance through an algorithm and based upon these things. And then people would be automatically fired if the algorithm said that they weren't a good teacher. And so you have all these mm. people who are brilliant teachers, but yet because of that algorithm was associating that then that becomes a part of their their record. And the key point about um, the third-party doctrine is that the any data you give to a third party has no reasonable expectation to be private. That literally means it's a public document. It's on your public record. Everything that's being recorded on you is a part of your public record that the U.S. government can have access to. And like all these inferences and all these things, we have no transparency. We have no way to control it. We have no way to opt out. There's no way to say, don't even record it. We're kind of, we're moving into a world where all of these algorithmic inferences and judgments are going to be made upon us. And that could be creating things that are just wrong algorithmically, but then put us into this kind of profile that makes us suspicious by, you know, the state actors or the information gets out there. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that you know, that you're just perfectly innocent, but yet there's certain ways in which the algorithms, just the way they're set up, um, you know, there's just a, a room for a lot of abuse. And yep. so the third party doctrine needs to be like, that's the fourth amendment. And whenever they try to say recording all data, that it's privacy and that we're architecting for privacy, as long as they're recording all this data, that's not private. No matter how much you want to say that no one else other than Facebook can have it, 
if the U.S. government can go to it, then that's that's part of your public record, according to the for- interpretation of the Fourth Amendment in the United States. And it, I think it's important to, to say that just because the, the U.S. laws are what's dictating Facebook's behavior around the world. So what's legal here is what they're doing for everybody in the world, regardless of whether or not it's, you know, according to their legislation. And of course, every area has different laws. But um, I don't know, I just I feel like the, my biggest issue is that, you know, I've been bringing up these issues for years now, but it just feels like I haven't had an opportunity to just have a conversation about this with Facebook. Like, how are you going to deal with this? Like, what what's the plan? There's all sorts of yeah. ways that harm could be done with all of this, but yet they're just, they're not engaging on this issue. And they're, you know, I'm, I, I wouldn't be surprised within the next year or two that there's going to be a retinal scan uh, in your headset. You put on the VR headset, they're going to say, this is going to ensure that you are you and that we know who people are because we want to have your identity tied to you because you act better in social environments. But if there's a retinal scan and it's, it's and it has the ability to automatically switch between the Facebook account, that means they'll always know who you are. And they'll always be able to correlate what happens with the data that you do in a VR experience to this psychographic profiles that they're aggregating. So I don't know. I just I, I feel like there's a little bit of a code red situation where there's so many different red flags for ways in which that could go wrong. But in the United States, it's like, well, let's just break things I mean, move fast and break things. And, mm-hmm. you know, the unintended consequences for how, you know, we could we could we've already gone too far with how big Facebook is with, you know, three, you know, nearly 3 billion people. That's just like, that's larger than any government. But there's, Facebook's not structured like a government. It's structured like a totalitarian entity that has Mark Zuckerberg controlling 58% in voting, of voting shares. So there's one person in the world that has uh, com- complete control over the fate of 2.7 billion people. And there's no accountability to that. There's no, there's no ways of checking that power that he has. And I think that's, you know, we're, it, it, there's so many different issues that are, embedded into that. But as we move forward and try to create a, a, a virtual world that really works for all, like how do we really architect that so that we have those checks and balances? Because right now we don't have any of that. And it's, you know, these corporations are becoming into governments and they're having more power in what happens around the world than the governments do themselves because they created this this social network that is um, becomes a national security threat um, and state actors and information warfare. I mean, it's, it's really quite complicated. They've almost become too big for what they're doing and trying to collapse all the context. And, you know, it's just an inordinate, it's an extraordinary amount of power that has, you know, as we're VR journalists, but what kind of like checks and balances can we in this room really like give to somebody who is a megacorp that is literally just has that much power around the world. And by the way, it could potentially even be feeding lots of data into the national security state. There's a fire hose relationship between the intelligence community and how they're using that information and what they're doing with that. And, you know, according to the Snowden documents. So I don't know, that's my <laughs> like, hey, like there's a lot of issues here. And let's like, I'm glad we're talking about it. But at the end of the day, I almost feel like what can we even do? Um, yeah, I appreciate that. And I, and I got some thought there, thoughts there that I think are really important. Um, you got into a lot of the things that I wanted to get into, but the, the core here is a lot of our conversations about VR going back to 2016 when Valve powered the HTC Vive and Oculus owned by Facebook had the Rift. The moment both of those were on the market, everyone joined two camps, either the Vive camp or the Oculus camp. And depending on which headset you bought, 
you joined a uh, a group, a a brotherhood, sisterhood of people who bought the same device as you, and you drove all of your conversations online from that weird, skewed perspective of being a consumer of one type of device. Uh, later that year, obviously, Sony came out uh, and got its PSVR out on market with the Move controllers, and then at the very end of 2016, Touch was there, and you had three different platforms you could choose from with hand controls and fairly decent move, movement freedom to move around the world or move around uh, in six off space. But what I want to point out is that all the discourse and all of the discussion was driven from this place of I own a headset. I'm my thing is the best. And it's a, con- it's a consumer oriented fanboy oriented way of having a conversation. And what we're talking about now with, this next stage of the VR market is we're actually pointing out that you kind of need to let these fan-based arguments fall by the wayside and have real discussions about policy and the legal frameworks which govern all these devices and the way we use them. And that is not something our commenters necessarily or we are necessarily able to to have uh when there's so many people just wanting to have these fan-based arguments about which headset they're going to buy and which which camp is taxing them and i think that's the thing why we spent a fair half of this conversation talking about the apple question and why i brought it up was the moment the apple headset hits the market if it's really going to happen uh, we renew this fan-based argument. It is now everyone just... I, I think would, I've been thinking about this a lot, and if there was an Apple headset, I think it actually will drive some people to buy a Quest who were on the fence before because of the Facebook account requirement issue, where they're like, you know, actually... This three hundred, this this four hundred dollar headset is um, safe because there's competition in the market, and I'm now willing to go for the lowest price option. And now I'm going to have this argument about Apple actually taxing. I'm going to I'm going to go back into that fan based argument and say, you know, actually Apple's an overpriced hunk of junk, and uh, I'm actually happy with the Facebook ecosystem. And it erases all of these discussions we're having right now about needing to have policies and legal protections for our interactions online, the things we buy, and uh, protection for those things going to the future. Uh, I've talked with you a lot, uh, Darshan, about uh, HDCP uh, protection on content uh, that's high-definition copyright protection it's uh, it's built into most systems into like the HDMI cords that run from device to device where you can't port certain types of media to certain types of devices because it's got this copy protection on it. And it's one of these forms of uh, DRM that keep you from being able to put uh, stuff out there into the world. 
um, <laughs> HTTP unauth unauthorized content disabled. So people see that when they try to show their content in certain ways through certain devices. And it's one of these things that you have to invest on the order of billions of dollars in patents and infrastructure in order to get over this restriction and to enable a storefront like uh, various companies are trying to build. And it's a, that's why it's one of these reasons why piracy is so popular is because it comes with this stripped out of it. And it gives people the freedom to use their content the way they want, um, even if they didn't buy it. I mean, it's it's hard. It's it's not fair to call it your content if you pirated it, uh, and the audience and the, the the artists aren't actually getting paid for the distribution of the content that way. It's just um, arguing that uh, that this framework that only lets big companies distribute software and distribute movies. Is something that really restricts people in very subtle ways. And then you get to the even deeper issue of physically interacting with other people over the internet and what you're allowed to say to them, what might get squelched when you're not allowed to say certain things or there might be uh, someone listening. Uh, the, I guess the thing I just want to, to reiterate here is that when we discuss all this stuff, we're talking about capitalism and corporations that have one person in charge and a board that determines what that company is allowed to do. And that's a very different discussion than the discussion that we need to be having, which is how do we change our laws to protect individuals and what we're allowed to do uh, with our content and with our online identities and what other corporations out there are allowed to do with them and what governments are allowed to do with the things we do online. And as soon as we get those competitors for the quest, we need to keep having these conversations about how these things change. How do we protect democracy when a company like Facebook needs to, you know, seize their path to 4 billion people on their social network being driven by forcing people into groups where it's just a smaller echo chamber where people can get radicalized and forced into very weird theories because everyone in their circle repeats the same wrong information. Um, we need to be having conversations about how democracy survives and individual freedom is protected with actual policy changes. And I think that's what you were kind of getting at kent is is yes we're raising these red flags and talking about these concerns but it's not easy to have these conversations about how the laws change especially when we see mark zuckerberg go speak to congress and often getting asked very stupid questions um you know there can be very stupid questions being thrown at some of the richest most powerful people in the world and there's a serious gap there in how a lot of these politicians understand technology and what their real concerns are. So um, I think that's, you know, I covered a lot of ground there too. Jamie, is there anything else you want to share? And Darshan, is there anything else you want to share before we close out today? Uh, I don't know. I just, I keep, well, first of all, actually, 
specifically to you, Darshan, I actually really want to thank you for the thread you put out last week um, in light of the news, because I actually took I took what you that thread specifically into my visit in Horizon uh, earlier this week. Um, because in my mind, the entire time there, as we were um, talking about the capabilities of Horizon was, was Rec Room. Um, and the competition that's going to arise from that, because they're, they're basically built on the same philosophy of social, social spaces that, uh, that you can create in-app and then invite anyone in to have, you know, this kind of otherworldly, uh, but also deeply personal experience. And that, that really informed me, um, thinking about what it was, you know, almost where the idea of Horizon came from, uh, in some senses, and then also what it means for Rec Room going forward. So, and, and I think we'll publish our full interview, uh, with Facebook in the next couple of days. Hopefully, maybe we'll only publish some of it. I don't know. It's a, it's a tricky interview. There's a lot of evasive answers in there, but I, I do mm. want to thank you for that. And, and, and also to, to add to that point was uh, the idea that, and I touched on this back at the start, that Horizon might end up being like one of a set of social VR apps for Facebook. I, I actually think, you know, having seen it and knowing what they're going to do with venues, those, those apps are kind of of equal significance, whereas we've been giving Horizon a lot of the main attention. The two, the revamp of the both of them they're actually kind of on a level playing field. And I have been thinking about what other services out there are there for Facebook to kind of take from developers and give the horizon slash venues spin. Um, and I think that's what's at the forefront of my mind in this whole debate going forward is the different pieces uh, that Facebook are assembling to create what they can basically what they bought oculus for right like the different apps the different services that, um that they can glean this data from uh to make their complete picture and that's my last uh paragraph in my uh preview of horizons today is i've, I've realized that horizons is is one piece of this picture that is still kind of shrouded in mystery in some ways um and so I think that actually guides a lot of my reporting going forward. So yeah, yeah, thank you very much for that, Fred. I know it's a hard; it must have been a hard thing to talk about, a hard thing to put out there. Um, but for me personally, yeah, going forward, I'm going to think about everything Facebook is doing going forward and saying, well, you know, what kind of privacy policies are there because of this, and you know, what what have they taken from developers? Who are they putting in jeopardy? in their own development ecosystem because of this. So that, that's, that's my main takeaway from the past two weeks, I think. Thanks, baby. Um, my takeaway, and, and to, to wrap up our conversation today, my, my take on this, um, for me, it comes from a place of having spent my entire adult life working on VR. And as far as I can tell, like I'm probably going to spend the rest of my life just working to uh, you know, build cool stuff and get VR and AR to where I think it could be in the far, far future. Um, I think we all have dreams of how VR and AR can change the way uh, we interact, the way we communicate. I mean, this whole conversation is happening in VR, and that's really cool. It's a glimpse of the future in so many ways. We're in a virtual studio in the middle of a pandemic. This is awesome. 
Um, <laughs> but while we have all these futuristic visions, that's that's great. But also, how do we get there? Who's going to get there? And what does that futuristic vision end up being like? Is it utopian or is it dystopian? All along the way, we can. I, I, I'm using the Quest right now. It's a fantastic product. It is a it's a great VR device. Um, I'm a huge fan of it. But all along the way, we might be supporting companies and policies that lead us down a path that we might end up regretting in the far future because we didn't have conversations today because we didn't push back today. We might end up with an ecosystem that is much more limited. We might end up with an ecosystem that's more controlling. Um, Facebook in its earliest days, in its infancy, I'm talking like 2005 through 2010, they only had data that users voluntarily gave to Facebook. And they were very successful in monetizing and growing uh, that data collection and, and turning that into a product that was addictive that people enjoyed using. We're now getting into a world where Facebook openly wants to um, dominate every portion of our life, meaning uh, work, play, entertainment, uh, you know, where you hang out, where you collaborate. Uh, they see VR and AR as the next computing platform. There, there's no doubt about that. And and I just want all of us to, to think about what are their long-term intentions and will all of this be created in, in a manner where we will be happy with the end outcome 10, 20, 30 years from now, or will we end up in a far more dystopian state because it was used in a manner that wasn't truly consumer friendly? Um, and how will that affect all of our lives? Um, we already have had plenty of issues in the past uh, decade or, or more uh, when it comes to privacy and data protection and uh, manipulation, um, you know, manipulation of the election or manipulation of emotion. Uh, we're barely beginning to scratch the surface there. And that's when Facebook didn't even see everything about our lives. We're now entering a new era and Facebook is creating an amazing device and is going to likely dominate this new industry. Um, but they're going to have so much more access and control over our lives. And it's really important, I think, to ask at this point before that happens, is this the path we want to go on? And, and how do we make sure that this path is just... Um, well, better. I everything you said is is exactly in exactly what people need to be thinking about, and I'm so appreciative of our guests joining us today. the mm -hmm. The thing I we're we're going to keep pushing Facebook to try to have these conversations with us, similar to the ones we're having today. And i I think it's important to express out there to our audience, thank you for watching us, but understand also that our guests today didn't ask for pre-approved questions. They didn't, they just came on the show because they thought that this was a conversation worth having. And we let this conversation go where we wanted it to go. Uh, we have a red light that shows when we're broadcasting out to the internet so that we're transparent about when we're live uh, for an audience to see. And, it's important to understand that we're we're having honest conversations about what we're doing and what we want to see in the future. And it's really important that we're not kind of pre-vetting what we can talk about and allowing that to, to conversation to be controlled. And it's it's gonna be important in this next phase that if Facebook's and, and, and VR in general starts adding tens of millions of people to this community, to this 
medium and, and, and it really has significant numbers of people coming into virtual space and interacting that we have conversations with the executives in charge of all of this stuff that are the same way as this type of conversation right now. No pre-vetted questions. We're honest, open, and areas where we don't know, we, we don't know. We say we don't know and we move on. And uh, it's going to be important that we get Andrew Bosworth in here in this next phase and people of that, uh, Chris Pruitt. We need to have people like that in this studio and having these conversations. And uh, we hope hope to have you uh, in, in this studio in the future. And thank you so much for joining us. Please make sure to like, comment, and subscribe out there so you can follow us when we have more of these conversations in the future. And we've got a couple big, huge months coming up for the VR industry. Uh, last year, VR headsets were sold out around Christmas time, around the holidays. And I see no indication uh, that it's going to be any different this year. It's going to be even bigger uh, than it was last year in my by my estimation, and that means you're going to want the, all the latest conversations and news about this stuff. So make sure you visit UploadVR.com. Check out the Voices of VR podcast by Kent Bai. And Big Screen is out there providing some incredible services for the community. And thank you all for joining us today and see you in the future. Bye, guys. See you.